Hello, welcome everyone. This is the second installment of our series of AI panels at Rablit. Today we have two special guests, Chip Puyan um, and Hamjad Masad, the CEO of Rablit. Myself, I'm Michele, I'm running the AI team currently at Rablit. And the topic of today will be talking about how to put large language models in production. We're gonna cover both the challenges that we're all facing in the industry but also the amazing opportunities that LLMs offer today. And I think, you know, the, the three of us in this panel are extremely excited and working with LLMs on a daily basis. So let's start from Chip. Chip, nice to see you again. You know, we did back from hey. Stanford days. Um, I'm going to give a very brief intro about you. There is so much to say, so I'm going to pass the mic to you and you can cover everything that I forgot, okay? Okay, sounds great. Perfect. So um, I, I think I met you while you were about to graduate at Stanford. Then you went to through a series of amazing jobs. You work at NVIDIA, you were a Snorkel. Uh, currently, you're an AI company founder. You have been an amazing, prolific writer, um, especially in the MLOps area. You published last year an, an incredible book. I think it got 3,000 reviews on Amazon by now. So a lot of people... <laughs> I wish. A lot of people in the community are uh, really um, uh, appreciating you know, all the effort that you put there. And last time we collaborated together, I think I was one advisor in your uh, Stanford course on machine learning system design. So really nice to see you again. Please fill all the gaps that are left in your intro. I think it's pretty it's pretty good. Thank you so much for having me. So, um, Mikael, uh, Am I still saying your name right? Absolutely. I remember like when we talk about like five years ago, you were still, you were very excited in like using machine learning to have a write better code, understand code better. So it's really cool to see you at, at Rebel today. And uh, really nice to see you, Amjad. Uh, I know that we met um, um, many years ago on a camping trip. I think it was like an idiot back then. I just shared our college. So I'm so glad that after that, you still want me back on this. Uh, so yeah, really very excited to be here today. Perfect. Yeah, no, we, we love to have you on board and we're going to be talking about your recent blog post on LLMs. Um, and that's going to be basically the focus of today's discussion. And then, you know, we have our uh, stable guest, Amjad, the CEO of Replit. Hi, Amjad. Nice to see you again. Yeah, great to be here. So, um, Amjad, you know what? I just saw the blog recently. It was like, you wrote, you, you, usually, you usually write a lot and the writing was really cool. I love the essays. Why did you stop? Well, you know, time uh, is is mostly why I stopped. Uh, it's uh, just like been hard to find, um, especially running a company and having kids uh, is a, is a sort of a hard to find continuous blocks of time needed to, because, you know, as you're writing, you probably spend a lot of time writing your blog post, which is uh, great, goes into a great depth. Uh, you know, you spend a lot of time procrastinating, thinking, hitting the writer block and doing all of that. And so it just, uh, you, you sort of get used to being just interrupt driven and, and uh, there isn't a lot of time for like deep work. And so trying to build that back in right now, uh, but I think it doesn't make a lot of sense for um, you know, certain times during the company when it's like really intense, it's really hard to find those. Yeah, it seems like you have to drop either the company or the kids. <laughs> kind of, yeah. Or if it's our job to keep them job less busy, so he can yeah. go back to writing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We're, we're gonna make that happen. No worries. <laughs> All right. So let's get this started. Um, 
Chip, let's talk about your, your blog post. I think everyone at Rapid read it and loved it. We had a lot of discussions, you know, on, on our internal Slack. I couldn't see the people in person because not all of us are sitting in the same office, but I'm sure everyone was nodding when reading your blog post, especially on the challenges of deploying LLMs, the lack of LLM ops, and so forth. So why don't you, let's get started by hearing your hot takes about what you wrote. You know, like if, if, if people have two minutes take away about what you, what you wrote in that blog post, uh, what, what would it be? Um, so the blog post is from like mostly personal experience. I think it's like, uh, I think a lot of people, not just me, right? When we saw uh, on this cool stuff going on, I was like, okay, I want to play around with it. And I actually have a semi-brother who who putting a lot of requests. Like, okay, I want this app like this. Can I do this? It's like, okay, let me try building this for him to see if this works. And so so I in the process, I ran into a lot of challenges. And it's like, wow, this is like, I wonder if other people share similar experience. And the blog post was entirely like from talking to people, personal experience, and see like what are the common threads that I saw. It was been it was a fun experience. Oh, I, I bet, yeah. As much <laughs> as working with LLMs, you know, like <laughs> joys and pains on a on a daily basis. Um, yeah. yeah. So like at Rapple, right? You you work with a tongue of like LLM, so I'm I'm wondering like which which part do you felt like that I missed or like uh, yeah. I, I would say a lot of the work that goes in LLMs today, first of all, is way more engineering than people expect. But I would say that applies to anything in machine learning. You know, the, I'm talking about myself, you know, coming from academia, but I always try to have a hybrid profile in my life. Uh, researchers expect most of the work to be writing papers and maybe, you know, the 200 lines of code of PyTorch. And in reality, LLMs is a lot of engineering work around it <laughs> and then just a tiny bit of LLM optimization. So that's definitely something that we learned the hard way internally. Uh, we recently released our own bespoke model that we trained from the ground up, you know, so the way from curating the data, training our own vocabulary, coming up with the whole LLM. And also a very important part for us is, you know, we have a lot of users, so how to deploy it, how to have optimized inference, how to lower the latency. So maybe these are issues that not everyone is exposed, you know, the LLM researchers see the interesting core part of creating models, but then there is a lot of work that happens after creating the model per se. Um, um, can I ask a follow-up question about that? I'm always curious sure. to see like the internal working of different teams when they build their models. So like, uh, how long did it take you to build that model? Like how many engineering weeks uh, or like the cost of it, yeah? <laughs> We talk about weeks. It's more days. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so I think we set our mind on that, uh, let's say, a month before we, we actually released it. But yeah. it was uh, like a slow ramp up at the beginning. You know, we, we were working on the data pipelines. We were working on the vocabulary, doing some ablation studies. And then at the, you know, at the point where we realized, let's make this happen, you know, we're into something that is going to work well. And we were getting like good uh, promising results on the ablation studies. Then we decided to scale up and everything happened in the matter of, I think, a week. The mm -hmm. core model that we released open source was trained in three days on 256 GPUs. And I mean, that's the beauty of working with models that are not massive. So we released a 2.7B. Uh, it would have not been the case, you know, if we were working on a 7B or a 13B. But, yeah. um, you know, it, it really tells you how how much easier things are compared to a year ago. Now, that being said, easier probably comes from the fact that I've been doing mistakes in this field for yeah. quite a few years. So like, <laughs> this time it was a bit easier, but uh, we literally went like 
two people full time on the project and then like another couple helping us quite a bit. Uh, so yeah. it, it's very exciting to see how accessible LLMs have become mm. from, you know, for smaller teams. Yeah, the, I the see. surprising thing about it was like, um, we didn't know uh, what we're going to get. Like a lot of, um, a lot of where the LLM world is right now is sort of, you know, feels like a little like alchemy. You sort of pour in data from here and data from there. You stir a little bit uh, and then something pops out and then you look at it and like, oh, is this good or is this bad? And so the slow ramp up that um, McKinley talked about was us uh, actually training uh, very small models, like 300 million parameter model, uh, just to see like, actually, are we getting anything interesting out of those? Um, you know, you can see the loss going down, but you know, that doesn't tell you much. Right. Um, and so you, you sort of have to do these test training runs. Um, but even at the end one, which we called the YOLO run, because we were going to run this 2.7 billion parameter run and, uh, light up a lot of money on fire essentially. But, uh, are we going to, are we actually going to get something interesting? Uh, and we didn't have a lot of, although we did these test runs, we didn't have a lot of, um, uh, you know, a, a lot of confidence in that. Just to add more variance, I think it was the first time uh, we had trained a tokenizer uh, as well. So it was uh, like it was like a bunch of things had changed, um, and then the performance that we got was surprising uh, in terms of positively surprising. It was mm -hmm. a lot better than than we expected. Uh, to the point that now we're thinking, oh my god, we actually probably left a lot more on the table. In terms of what we could do and that you know how we can optimize the data mixture and how we can uh just like that make the product better and so we, we got a lot more ambitious uh and you know the, the next model that we're going to train is just going to be uh get, get to be more ambitious and you know it, it, that, that's a little tricky you don't want to you don't want to you know yeah. uh, you know adjust your ambition too high and then and set yourself up for failure but you know you sort of want to you sort of want to stage it out um but, but then at the end of the day, I think you just need to accept that there's certain amounts of uncertainty uh, that you're going to have to live with. And a big part of engineering, especially at startups, is that sort of YOLO mindset and like, you know, <laughs> fuck it, test and prod. <laughs> yeah. That is pretty awesome. So like, so you did one run, right? For 2.7 billion mm -hmm. per model. Just one run. It was um, one run. And then we had a fine-tuning run after that with our uh, rapid data. But uh, even that was a YOLO fine tuning run, so it, it worked pretty much out of the box. I see. I'm wondering if that's like similar for other companies. Just like, yes, we want you to like experiment with this LM stuff, and we just like have one try, one shot at it. To be fair, I don't know many companies having built their own bespoke models. I think I can count them on two hands, perhaps today. I, I might be underestimating, but uh, if you go on a game phase, you won't find plenty of you know generative causal LMs uh, trained from scratch. A lot of distilled versions, fine-tuned versions, that is definitely yeah. more approachable today. Uh, but, you know, from the ground up, is still quite a bit of a challenge. Yeah. And of that yeah. said, you have the potential of lighting <laughs> on fire a lot of money if you yeah. get yeah. it wrong. Yeah. I mean, like, you're pretty familiar with, like, Mosaic, right? I wonder, like, did you consider using them for a bespoke model? We, we work with Mosaic. Yeah. Okay. Mosaic. Oh, yes. oh, that's cool. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That definitely helped a lot. You know, like we, in a sense, we expanded our engineering team by 10x working with them. 
it was a it was a great experience. You know, shout out to the team once again for for helping us quite a bit throughout the process. I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, 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 it's kind of wild uh, how fast um, this stuff is becoming accessible. Like I remember a year ago, we were uh, when we were building Ghost Rider. Um, and looking at the codex prices, even for Cushman, the smallest one, we were like, we will never be able to do this. Uh, and we know how to do this. We built the entire thing. We actually like had prototypes like way earlier, but the prices were kind of crazy. And we knew because we had a lot of uh, users. We we have you know our customers tend to uh, you know t- tend to be a little different than sort of. Um, you know, say Microsoft's or GitHub's customers, and uh, for us, the price higher um, is you know is is not is just not going to work. And so, um, you, when we went down this open source path, and then eventually uh, building our own models and, and open sourcing that, that all happened in like less than a year, like six to eight months, right? Um, and and it's just you you go from a place where it just feels like oh. OpenAI has, you know, a monopoly on this technology to like, oh, like you can actually like hack on this in your like, you know, mom's basement in like six to eight months is, is, is pretty amazing. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. I mean, things are moving so fast that sometimes I just get a little bit like dizzying. So my friends and I were talking like we, should, we need a conference call. Like everything is so overwhelming. And just <laughs> like, just to complain and you like have like puppies and I know boba and tea and Invite me in, you know, I need some time <laughs> after the experience. Okay. Right, why don't we talk a bit about um, what you're doing at Claypot and also you know, the idea of continual learning. Uh, I have some questions about, you know, also Replit and our models, but, uh, you know, let's start from real-time machine learning. What do you think is becoming so important and why are you, you know, devoting all your energy on that? And perhaps what, what is Claypot, uh, you know, uh, first sure. and then we can go. Yeah, so 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 far as like real time machine learning, uh, I think like they can be think of in different ways. So like one, uh, one is like for on prediction side, right? Like um, you you have some requests coming in, you have some user activities, and you want to leverage this information to make predictions right away, right? Like so, there are a lot of use cases that are very useful. So like a fraud and scam, of course, they are like uh, uh, the the typical example, like uh, on the ETA estimations, uh, dynamic pricing, but also like a lot of recommended systems search, right? Like if um, if you see people are looking at things, you want to like look at that recent activity and make and have them like find the things they're looking for right now, not the things they look for like six months ago, right? So, so, so I think like, that is one thing about online, uh, online like real-time machine learning is like online prediction, leveraging like fresh data to be able to make better predictions. Um, and hopefully, to like make you a lot more uh, money. And the second thing is about like how to update the models, right? So subversion phase, you don't really update the model weight. You just like leverage fresh information for predictions. And uh, then continual learning is like how to leverage this information for um, to update the model weight. So especially with, uh, I'm so glad about like on this like chat GPT stuff, because it made people realize like, oh, wow. It's possible, like how how quickly models can go stale. Like how many times mm-hmm. you see, uh, put a request like, oh, uh, as my knowledge cutoff is like September twenty twenty one, I can't really have you fight anything after that. And we're like, okay, let's try to figure something out. Like maybe you browsing, right? So um, or like you put more context into the 
uh, to put more information into the context of prompt. But I think it's just like a workaround because there have been research showing that like incorporating information through the context, like prompt, is actually a, doesn't give quite as good performance if uh, compared to like building that context into the model itself, like by retraining. So, so I do think just like that's why we decided to work at uh, Claypot. Yeah, yeah, that, that's great. So uh, I'm glad you talk about LLMs at the end because my, you know, selfish question is, and I'm going to ask you to wear your teacher hat and also your Oracle hat at the same time. Mm -hmm. So do you have a clue how we're going to be capable of fixing that issue with LLMs? And if yes, what is your prediction? When that's going to happen? And think about our rapid model. You know, I would love to keep it refreshed with all the, use, the code that our users generate on a daily basis. But right now, our plan is to retrain it from the ground up, say, every, you know, every month, every quarter, depending on how much money, you know, we decide to invest in this. Wait, um, like every month? At, at least this is my this is my dream. I'm sure that Judd will yeah. never you know, approve it because it's way too expensive. But, you know, you see where I'm going. It will be amazing yeah. to make sure that if there is a new library, a new framework that our users adopt, we want to immediately be capable of generating code based on that new framework. And, Right now, it's not the case. Our knowledge cutoff is not as bad as ChatGPT, so we are not talking about September 2021. Yeah. But you know, it's still something that eventually is gonna you know bite us. So, what do you think? What is the LLM community doing there? Like, I, I try to read as much as possible, but I don't think there is still like a good proper solution apart from retraining and spending a lot of money. Yeah, I do think it's like there's like an immense amount of work uh, being like research being done in this area, mm -hmm. right? Uh, so I think like there are, there are um, one, one, one thing is like people have been like thinking of like treating the new data as just like fine tuning problem, right? So you don't, you don't retrain the base, you just like get fine tuning. And in the fine tuning itself, there are like multiple things like what kind of layers do you fine tune? Like, do you just fine tune the last layer or like uh, several layers? And there's the idea of like adapter, like you just like inject a new layers uh, into your, uh, your model and just like fine tune on uh, that uh, that new injected uh, layer. So, so I think I see a lot of, um, of ideas. So I'm not entirely sure how that would pan out honestly um but about okay. i'm excited like i feel like as you are doing that I, I would hope that you could share uh your experience as well what, what, what yeah we will yeah i mean we have our eyes on laura i've been you know hoping to see that growing you know since the, mm -hmm. the first paper was released uh yeah. so i would say our, our bet is there when we we're still not putting too much work because i think it's still in the research phase right now as you mm -hmm. said so a lot of research going on a lot of promising results possibly there is still not the full-fledged engineering solution to to make this happen easily both for the fine-tuning but also for the serving which is you know very concerning to me like how do we load these layers or weights at runtime how do we keep them refreshed it's a yeah. non-negligible non engineering lift to make that happen yeah. can you so, chip can you uh, elaborate why you think that uh context uh you know uh, in context learning or context based information slash retrieval and putting in context, uh, you, you don't think that's the right approach because obviously there's now like a context window race almost. Anthropic obviously released its 100k uh, context length, um, and uh, and uh, you know, there, there's a lot of vector databases, a lot of frameworks, you know, Langchain, whatever. They're all working on this idea that oh, we you know, the uh, you know, the, the way to make transformers 
uh, you know, large scale transformers are actually um, uh, current is by efficient uh, re retrieval and in context learning. And so, so why do you think that's the wrong approach? Um, I don't think it's a wrong approach, right? I think it's just more like which one is more efficient, like which one is more performant, right? So, so I think like an approach can still be like, yes, it's a good, it is the best possible approach given like all the constraint we have, but like if we can lift certain constraint, right? Like cost, for example, like retraining, fat-training cost, then, uh, then we would be able to do more. So I would think of it as like, um, how are stages, right? So, so, or, or, um, so, so the first stage, like the most, uh, so the hardest one would just be like, yes, retraining the base model. And then the next stage is just like fine-tuning the model. And then another, like the top would just be like, okay, in-context learning, like better retrieval. So, and I would say this like, usually like the more you can do, like the lower in the in the, in the the pyramid, then the more performance uh, performance you can get, but uh, but it also like cost more, more effort, um, more money, uh, time-wise as well. So so that could, I, uh, that's what, what I think, um, I mean by the in-context learning, yeah. Yeah, that, that's, an, that's an interesting um, way of looking at it and in terms of like which layer of the stack and that, that actually as an analogy kind of, um, it makes sense because in software, uh, in all sorts of software, we have this sort of analogy. It's like you don't want to change the kernel all the time, but you do want to yeah. upgrade it when there's like security fix or some some something happens. Uh, yeah. You know, and you don't want to ship new application layer software all the time either. And but you want to be able to update the data all the time, right? And so it, it sort of makes sense as analogy. Uh, have you mm. looked? Have you looked at? Um, uh, uh, there's something called uh, vector additions, I think, um, where um, I, I think it's like a recent uh, uh, technique where you sort of inject uh, vectors into the middle of the uh, you know, feed forward uh, flow. So uh, I think it's called um, activation vector. You add an activation vector uh as, as a way to kind of steer lms have you looked at that at all or what do you think of it um i think like i've seen like several uh approaches deal with like vectors based um stuff so like something like like in adapter right you're just injecting certain vectors into mm -hmm. so fine tuning layers but also see like prompt tuning like instead of like feeding uh the prompt stacks you can also just like get the embedding of the prompt and then f and then update uh, that embeddings. Uh, so, mm. so I'm not sure where, where this activation layer falls in. Yeah, I haven't ever heard that phrase. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, this is. I think this is a new. It's like a, it's like from some alignment researchers. I'll just put it in the comments for you to look at it later. But uh, basically, yeah, you know, it's it's uh, it's uh, like you, you you give it a prompt and you know and everything, but in in the middle of the it's kind of a, it's the weird hack. Literally in the middle of the uh, uh, of, of the sort of uh, feed forward pass, you, you inject a, a, a vector somewhere uh, at like a certain layer, uh, and you give it some kind of weight, um, and and somehow you're able to uh, sort of steer or program the LM in a certain way. Um, so, so you know, thinking about your analogy of sort of like you know the sort of the the base and all the way to the uh, to the top, maybe there are some ways in the middle that you can do things uh, for, you know, uh, freshness and programmability. I see. 
I would have to look more into this. Does this update the model weights at all? No, or does no. it only update the, 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 the prom embeddings? Only the activations. So if you think about it, when you're doing context learning, the weights are frozen. So the model is learning mm -hmm. through the feed forward by changing the activation. So the, the activations are the, the new weights that learn through the in-context learning. And, and this approach is basically injecting a vector. It's like a method signature or some additional information that you give. Um, and it's similar to prompt tuning, but it's happening you know, midway through the feed forward rather than at the beginning as an input. Uh, they, I probably, see. they probably found out that it's even like more effective by doing that, uh, like at the random step of the feed forward rather than on the prompt tuning. But the, the underlying concept is the same. And again, like adapters are also kind of similar. So like they, they inject weights basically during the feed forward, you know, train in a different way. Um, from what we've been seeing, like empirically is that, as you were saying before, Chip, nothing is better than retraining the old model because it's, it's going to update also the weights based on the new data. But you know, we will have to find a good trade-off between how much money we spend so often we redo the pre-training and you know, how much we can adapt them with more and more advanced techniques. So yeah, that, that's one of the fields that I'm following the, the closest right now. But uh, I hope that someone will do the engineering lift to make them accessible. Perhaps you know we're going to be playing a role in that because it's very relevant for for us at Rapid. Uh, we yeah. just want to make sure that we make the right bet because we we can't afford to do like ten different threads in parallel. Uh, I know you raised a lot of money. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can convince some judge during the call. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Yeah, so I think it's pretty pretty cool. It's like um well question back is a context uh length question, right? So I know it's a lot of companies like want to have longer context length, like a hundred thousand uh token, for example. And I'm always curious, it's like, yeah, you can take in that many tokens, but like how efficient is a model able to use on these tokens, right? Because I've seen some research like, okay, the longer the tokens, the model I mean you probably have experience as well, right? The longer the to the context the, the models seem to like less able to like remember things from the beginning or like be able to mm -hmm. process. So I'm curious, like from, from your experience, um, have you tried out with longer token length? So, uh, I, we have not, but actually um, someone uh, did an experiment. I'm, tr I'm trying to find it. Um, on the 100K uh, on Tropic? On the, on the Claude uh, 100K right, yeah. context. Yeah. I think that's where they ran an eval against um, a GPT 3.5 with retrieval, uh, and they found that they're functionally uh, the same, except the retrieval is actually faster um, in terms of performance, right? Mm -hmm. so, uh, so some people are speculating maybe the context window is some kind of retrieval is doing, actually. Um, like maybe it's not actually like, you know, running, uh, you know, attention on, on all that. Um, so, uh, so, so I, th I think just the community is still reacting to that. Um, I mean, obviously like the best case scenario is that, yeah, this is, this, this is like functionally, uh, unlimited and it, it just gives yeah. you the same, the same performance. Uh, but what you're saying is that, you know, something at the top of the, uh, context, actually, uh, the model just sort of forgets, uh, as you get, as you get down, is that right? Yeah, so I, I did try with some some applications just like do some 
like very local small experiment so of course I, I would not publish a paper on it because i don't think like it would pass any like rigorous peer reviews but i think like just from my personal experience just try like yeah i try to like get um as much context in there as possible and the model is just like get really funky um like the response is not quite as good as like uh, so i even see like a lot of trick will do right like to break the task like the prompts into like smaller tasks like smaller prompts and um like so it can understand the instructions better when 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 we need like shorter so that is, is mostly in my experience and what i have seen yeah i i think i've seen also a few again empirical experiments where they copy paste the whole uh book like a murder story and then yeah. that you know who's the killer at the end and with you know with code 100k they kind of get into the vicinity of what would be a reasonable explanation, but they don't mm -hmm. get it right. You know, even if even if the explanation is in the context, because, you know, at the end, yeah. the book, you know, explains who, who was the murderer. Yeah. And to me, like, again, like chain of thoughts or like the, the most recent ways of you know doing prompting, yeah. and, you know, having a better reasoning seems to be the way to go regardless, because then you can really guide the model towards doing reasoning correctly and then giving you the right solution. Yeah. But nevertheless, I think, I'm grateful that, you know, we're seeing models with larger context windows because the only way to find out is to empirically test LLMs. Yeah. So that's, that's how we do research today, you know, unfortunately or likely, depending on the point of view. Yeah, it certainly like makes a lot of use cases possible, right? Uh, so, so like, what, what if you have some real long like documents and they want to like answer that questions? And I think like traditionally they would have long documents where you want to break them into like smaller smaller parts and like get embedding for each part and then enjoy them together but but the thing is like large language model today are not conditioned the generations part is tricky right because the text generation is not conditioned on the enjoy embedding it's conditioned on just like the embeddings of the whole thing so mm -hmm. so i think like we with our longer context length we can't really get the whole document embedding to be able to like, generate responses based on the document. Sure. So I, I was seeing that it's definitely like uh, make a lot of use case, use cases like this. Um, yeah. Yeah, do well. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I agree. Can you say more about that? I'm not, I'm not sure I understand the, the uh, last part about the embedding. So, 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 so like, um, so, so on your case, like we see a lot of people are trying to do, I'm sorry, I think there's like somebody, let me close the window. But anyway, I, 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 I found the evaluation I was talking about, uh, so I put it in the, in the chat. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So, um, so, so a lot of company we see is just like trying to do um, something called like talk to the data, right? Like um, get get all the company documents. Uh, so like so so you see your bank and you have a contract, uh, or like I'm buying a house, right? And I'm I'm looking at disclosures. And what I really want to have is somebody just look at all parts on the disclosures and um, and just be able to like uh, tell me things. Uh, like I can ask question about that, right? So so one one um. Um, one um, one approach is uh, it's just like get uh, put on the um, so so like say you want to do summarization right like one approach is just like get on the document into the context and say hey summarize this for me right and um, it could be very hard to do so without able to input on the whole document into that. Um, so so in the past like because you could need the embedding with the whole document and then you share it summarizations based on the embedding of the document, right? So so in the past, like, without, without generation, you just care about the embedding of the document. It's possible just break the documents into different chunk. And then you have another model to take on the embeddings of different chunks and generate the embeddings of the whole document. But then you would need to be able to generate responses 
based on the joint embeddings. So the generation part have to be trained on this kind of like joint embeddings. But mm. if but I do I think like for today language model mostly is just like generation conditions on the embeddings of like of the raw text, not the joint embeddings. Does that make sense? Correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think like a, approach is like a lot of companies are doing is just like um it's like use retrieval. Um, so, so, so what they do is just like, um, and it's just like, um, for, so they treat, they treat each, um, questions or like text as a query, right? So, so I like give it a long, like disclosures or a contract, they would like break that into different smaller chunks and generate embeddings for that. And when you receive a query, you get the embedding for this query and yeah. then use, use some like files or some like, uh, affections, um, query, uh, search to, to retrieve the embeddings uh, closest to this query embedding. So, and then you get all the chunks that related to, the, to this query. And then you input all the related chunks into the context and get response back. So in that case, like, you do need like a lot of like context lengths for that to work as well. Right, yeah. Um, but, but, but yeah, there's a lot of, uh, as you said, there's like a, pra- a lot of practical and theoretical consideration around context length. So, so what is, uh, what is Claypot's um, sort of solution to this, and, and what is it? What is the product going to actually look like? So that is just a very good question. So um, I would say this like for us, we see the world as um, the feature we categorize them into two type. So once we can like own this embedding space, so embedding is huge with Jet of AI, right? And we consider them as like fuzzier, um, uh, fuzzier um, signals. Right, because um, it's pretty good, uh, but it's not really exact. You look at the embeddings, you're not quite sure, like, yes, what does it mean? Folding points, they own just folding points numbers. And then another kind of signal is like more like exact signals. So things like, uh, for example, like, oh, how many, uh, what is the average price of all the products this person has bought in the past uh, hour, past month, or like how many people, how many devices this person has locked in from, um, or uh, so, 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 so kind of thing like kind of matter, right? Because like, um, if you in the last, uh, if in the last half an hour, you locked in from one device, it's very different from, hey, if you locked in from like three devices from different locations. So this kind of thing like kind of, kind of matter. So you can't really rely on like fuzzying computations, right? So I do think like, for a lot of machine learning models to work, you would need a combinations of both fuzzier computations, uh, fuzzier signal and more exact signals. So that's where we come in. So, so, so we don't really have a, we don't train our own language model, right? But, but we do have a way for people to work with both types of signals efficiently and easy. So don't have to switch between different pipelines. So, so you, what, what, you go ahead, Mikhail. Uh, so you, you can combine then generation and or classifications for both types of signals. That is the, yeah. that is the, spe- the special source, the magic ingredient of Claybot, right? Yeah. So, so I think that we see that in, in a lot of use cases, like for example, like for recommended system, right? You can have um, on the product embeddings. Um, so say that if users look at on the product, like you can get on the embeddings of product and you can generate like a, an embedding of the users based on the products they have seen, right? Uh, but you, you can also look at this like, um, oh, hey, like the price range of this person looking into, like the exact uh, computations, right? Like the categories of the products they look into and you need to compute that. So now if you use both of them, you can uh, do pretty good. So you can think in a way, you can think of like embeddings. So embeddings are expensive to generate, right? You don't do it on the fly. So so you can think of embeddings as a way to like, um, 
of course you can it's a certain case you, you actually can um um but i don't think it's like very uh scalable um like say if i look at like a lot of um um, but I think like, it's a lot of time, it's, it's better if you have like based on longer history. So you can take embeddings as uh, keeping long-term information about uh, about someone or like about a, an item. And you can think of like, um, you can use the most recent activities as a short-term interest and you can join them to make like better uh, for uh, recommendation systems uh, or search. Um, another thing is like fraud detection use case, right? You can think of like transact, you can both treat a transactions as a uh, as an unstructured data and just fit into the model and just get a back embedding to represent what transaction is about. And then you can just look at the user behavior, like, okay, how many transactions a person has sent over the last um, 10 minutes, uh, an hour, 30 days, or the average price, uh, average transaction amount, like categories and on, on like IP devices. And then you can use both of that information to be able to detect fraud, like even transition is fraud or not pretty well. Um, and we, we can have many other examples that I can go into. <laughs> yeah. I'm just sorry, I cut you off. I think you had a question. Uh, yeah, I, I was just going to say, like, how would uh, developers use uh, use Claypot? Like, what, is it, what does it look like to a service? Um, so one thing that's like, uh, are you talking about like whether it's going to be open source or is it going to be like a managed service or? or yeah, is it like a managed service? Do I include it? Is it like uh, some sort of library or like, uh, are you going to do serving and training on my behalf? Or like, how, how would it look like? Um, I do think it's like there are a lot of companies. Um, so, so I do think it's like as a startup, uh, you're pretty experienced at SQL, like you can't really do everything, right? So I do think it's like as a, um, as a workflow goes, um, people pick different part of it to focus on. For some, like some companies focus on making the inference service like really fast, like the quantization installations, like um, like NVIDIA Trident, right? Like does the quantization pretty well. As a company focus on like, the training part, makes training pretty fast. Um, like Mosaic makes it doing pretty well. Um, some, uh, so for us, like we focus on the, the workflows, like the, the data scientist experience. So as a data scientist, right, um, I want you to leverage different kind of like data sources, right? Some some are like batch sources, some are streaming sources. Um, I want you to leverage different kind of signals, right? Some like um, embeddings, some are like exact count. Um, so they could have different like latency requirement, right? So for example, like, oh, hey, if I care about something that happens in the last six months, then one day latency is five because it doesn't make like a few hours difference. It's not going to make a big change. But if I care some things that happen in the last 10 minutes, then latency is very important. Um, so, so, so that's a kind of thing. So like I would have different like latency requirement and our experience is to give, give users like data scientists, like the ability to just use of same API. Um, so we, we support like both Python and, um, and SQL. And we, we kind of have a compiler layers, right? You write the code and we look at your kind of computations you want to do and we would uh, based on the characteristic of the of the commission you want to do we would kick off the most efficient commission engine so we have a compilation layer to like um compile into the code of that different commission commission engine so so we focus on that um um on, on the workflow uh, experience makes sense yeah chip you you said you're not training LLMs, but you are using them in production, right? Um, or, or you're only using, you're only encoding, or you're also generating. Um, we don't build our own model per se, uh, but mm -hmm. we do. Uh, our 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 partners, our users do. 
So it's we, we just consider like um, LMs as as one way to, as one way to generate signals for for the workflow. Yeah. Got it. But you don't generate that signal yourself. The your client runs an LLM on premises and then they they include it in basically in your pipeline. So sometimes they run LMs on prem on prem, but uh, a lot of ones will just use like APIs. So so say yeah. like yeah yeah. Got it. But what what have been the challenges for you? Like to integrate APIs? What are the pros and cons? I think the pros we all know, you know, it's available out of the box. The cons is apart from the pricing, like what other pain points have you experienced in using APIs extensively? Oh, so I, as a question about like um, what is a like using like API like for LLM? Um, yeah, not not yeah. in general, of course. Yes, versus yes. um versus like open source model or correct uh, in us. So I think I could want to throw the question back at you because you also decided to like, invest a lot of money into building the bespoke <laughs> model, right? So I imagine performance is one is one is one reasons. And I'm curious to hear about like what what are the reasons uh, that you want the own model. I'll share mine. That I think also um, yeah. Jad will have a lot. Will have a lot to say. I being capable of training exactly the model you need for your use case uh, allows you to optimize it as much as possible. So the, the truth is, models yeah. available via API are extremely powerful. Not only because those companies are capable of training such yeah. powerful models, but also because they need to capture as much market as possible. And yeah. for us, it's exactly the opposite use case. We knew that we wanted to get the best possible code completion at a low yeah. price point and a low latency. And we just zeroed in on the perfect design to make that happen. So I think that's that's the key reason why we decided to go with our with our own model. And also, it's kind of a very good teaching experience internally, you know, to, to build your team and you know, gain all the knowledge required to build your own LLM. Yeah. I'm just anything else that I forgot? Yeah, I mean, uh, no, no uh, that, that's right. I mean, the uh, philosophically, though, I, I think there's like two visions of the world. I think that is that is forming in the AI space. One, whereas you know, this mega model that uh, learns everything and is multimodal, and it's like AGI sort of vision. Um, and, uh, and uh, you know, it's, it's sort of via an API. It magically understands everything you need. Uh, it's probably expensive. It's probably a little slow. But, you know, it, it, on the intelligence scale, it generates, uh, you know, uh, super high quality tokens, regardless of what you throw at it. Um, that, that's aspirationally, at least that's what these companies are, are trying, trying to do. The other vision is that LLMs are actually a, um, a sort of a, a new type of software component. Uh, and uh, you'll have a lot of different uh, LLMs with different capabilities, with different domain-specific knowledge. Um, and um, and the, there's going to be a lot of engineering to kind of make a product work out of a lot of different domain-specific uh, LLMs. You, know, you talk a lot about latency in your blog posts and latency is another consideration of like uh, when will the user be willing to wait longer versus wanting to get something in the order of milliseconds versus seconds versus minutes versus days. All that sort of goes into the, the, the building of the product. And at the end of the day, I think like any sufficiently complex product could use five to 50 LMs. 
like I think we're heading to a, a place right now with Revlet where we're going to have, you know, four to five LLMs interacting in different ways, supporting the user in different ways. And we called it last year, society of models. And, and, um, and it, maybe it was a bit of a contrarian sort of move last year. Where we said, this is where we think the, the future is headed. Yeah. And, and it turns out, I think we're increasingly right. Um, and there's a place for both. Uh, this morning I saw uh, this uh, model called GOAT 7B that was trained on arithmetic. Uh, it was Llama 7B trained on arithmetic that beat GPT-4 on addition, subtraction, multiplication, things like that, right? So, yeah. so all of that, I think we're continuously seeing signs that uh, domain-specific sort of training is probably going to be superior for most use cases, except perhaps for the use case where you're building a consumer chatbot that could do anything, uh, which is, which I think is probably not what most people would do. It's mostly just like, you know, what ChatGPT is and perhaps Microsoft Google built that. I think it's like a very interesting, um, so, so, um, before I answer the question, uh, before I follow up, I think I have a lot of like follow up because I feel like we had a big debate. So I, I was at a dinner recently uh, with a lot of like uh, people working on LMs, and we have this big debate about like open source versus like uh, or like bespoke model versus um, bit API. So I would love to follow up on that. But quick question is like, so so you mentioned it's like you you care about you, you build this model, Ghostwriter, right? Like bespoke two point seven million model, but it was before something like Star Coder came out, right? So so I wonder if like did the Star Coder change anything? No, because uh, actually uh, the fine-tuned Replit 2.7 billion parameter it gets close to the star coder performance on human eval, and I think generally if you if you try to use it, um, so performance-wise it's still very similar, but you know serving-wise it's going to be a lot cheaper, um, it's going to be a lot faster, uh, it's a lot more portable. We have some. Uh, open source hackers right now doing things with it. You're going to be able to run it on your iPhone pretty soon or your Android tablet. Uh, imagine having a coding assistant on your on your tablet offline. That would be pretty sick. Yes, certainly. Um, so, so, so what is like human eval? Like, what was the process like for human evaluation? Like, um, what do they test on and how many? Like, what's the process? So it's called human eval. It has been, it's a benchmark released by OpenAI around mm -hmm. 2021 in parallel with the codex paper and yeah. it's a set of 164 problems where you have a natural language prompt in english describing you know a, a yeah. relatively small problem that can be solved in python and then you ask the model to generate a standalone python snippet yeah. you do it you have a test harness and then yeah. you, know, you check if the results are correct or not so it's probably it's it's a Human eval is possibly not the best name, especially with everything human evaluation yeah. that has been happening in the last year. But you know, historically, that's that's how we call it, yeah. and um, uh, that's how we are being we have been benchmarking most of the code LLMs in the past couple of years. It's not the best benchmark out there. I think everyone in the community agrees, but um, someone has someone has to put the effort to come up with better benchmarks. And it's in our roadmap as well, rapid, but. Yeah. Yeah, we, we are hiring, by the way. I keep saying that a year ago. So <laughs> for LLM hackers that want to join us to work on these problems. Wait, so you call it Replit and not Rebel? It's Replit. 
Oh my yeah. god, it just has to be because we, our team switched to rep, rep, rep recently, and and my team was like rebel. I was like, I'm pretty sure it's called replit, and everyone was like, no, no, it's rebel. I'm so glad I went this time. But yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, so um, I so okay, so so back to the, the to, to the uh bespoke model on like uh, open source. So I I think like on um. I feel like if we go into evaluation, it's gonna be in another can of worm. I feel like um, I think historical like like academic or benchmarks have always been like lagging behind industry use cases, right? Like think about like so like I mean so so I was Nvidia. I was very excited about ML proof. So it was just like um, it takes time to build out like benchmark, uh, and it has to be an independent, right? Like the persons yeah. building the model can't be the same person who has a benchmark say, hey, according to my own benchmark, my model is performing better than everyone else. I think it's, it's really tricky. Um, and um, so it takes a while for like the, the industrial ML perps, right? You look at different use cases, different model types, and they have different benchmark for like different type of models and different use cases, right? I think the same thing would be needed for like LM. So like you think so like what what use cases is for, and it had to be like driven by a lot of industrial use case. But as things are still shaping up, it's really really tricky. Um, and um, so so I'm very I would love to hear more like the thought on like how the evaluations process um, is done. Yeah, I think the last thing, just yeah. to just to preface that, I'll let you answer, uh, Michaela. Like uh, we ran human eval out of curiosity. For yeah. us, it was about what our users get out of it. We yeah. just did an A-B test. Mm. And uh, we did actually multiple A-B tests, one with a base and the other with a fine-tuned. And users were accepting 30 to 50% more suggestions uh, on our on our new model versus on the what we used before on the Salesforce CodeGen model. Also, even when we were... Um, deciding whether to go our own way yeah. we we a b tested against uh, code Cushman and we yeah. were uh not that far behind and so you know it, it is i think the empirical uh answer here is like what are the users doing how much value the users are getting out of it um yeah. and then we can sort of you know benchmarks you know people start cheating in kind of all sorts of weird ways um like now people are like prompting before human eval and like, why? <laughs> and they introduce a new way of like testing on human eval with, with prompting. Like, what's the point of that? Are we just like, um, you know, are we just like, are we actually measuring something real or are we just competing on, on measurements? And, you know, I, before, uh, you know, I, I, I used to be, um, I used to write like JavaScript compilers and, um, the the sort of the benchmark starts out useful and over time just gets uh gets to become almost a counter signal uh yeah. where where you know if you perform really high on this benchmark it means you just like overfit it to this benchmark and 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 typically you'll see things that perform really high and are really bad in real world uh usage and so what you really want is to ship something and test it and see if users like it. Yeah, de definitely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I totally agree. That that's why we're focusing so much on user testing on our side. Yeah. I also believe that the last six months of evolution in LLMs have made benchmarks even, you know, harder to uh, to create and prepare. The reason being, how do you really evaluate chatbots? 
I know that we talk a lot about bypassing, and at this point, I think it's a common term in our community. Yeah. The truth is, that's the only way to actually evaluate them. You know, you open a tab with ChatGPT, one with Bard, one with Vicuna, and you just play with them, use the same prompt, and get a feeling of what kind of answer they give you. Um, yeah. And, you know, with code, is the same. Like, unless we build something way more powerful than human eval, the yeah. best way to evaluate is to put it in front of users. So. I think the LLM community is really pushing the testing prod philosophy. <laughs> I know we'll make a yeah. lot of people shiver, <laughs> a lot of our people listening to us, but yeah, that's that's how things go right now. And, yeah. Um, by the way, speaking of people listening to us, so uh, I think we have a few minutes left, so I would love to take some questions from the community. Um, thanks for everyone who sent amazing questions on the hashtag AI on Twitter. Uh, we have, in the last few minutes, I would say any reputable panel on LLMs has to talk about hallucination. Otherwise, you know, we're, we're going to leave people disappointed. So um, <laughs> is it possible to like go back to what um, just said about society of models? Okay, let's do that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah let's I, go to there, yeah. I thought the idea was very interesting because I feel like we keep going back and forth with being like trying to make a general models, right? So I feel like in the past we started out with like, okay, each model for different tasks, a model for sentiment analysis, a model for translations, a model for summarization. And now we just have all of these tasks in, right? Like we just like, yeah, transfer learning is the way to go. But it seems like you're saying right now, okay, now we have this like massive general model, generalizable across tasks. But now we want to like fine tune for like different domains. Um, this is just me, but can't hear. I'm oh sure. yeah, no, I was muted. I was muted. Yeah. I think, look, I mean, we approach things from, from an engineering perspective, right? And, uh, the, the, you know, we try not to be, uh, uh, you know, dogmatic about yeah. things. I agree that the promise of pre-training was that uh, you actually do it once. We, you know, we call them foundation models because they're yeah. supposed to be foundations for a lot of different things. But the reality of the situation is what we're finding is different data mixtures yield different results. Yeah. People have different tastes around how to mix the data. Uh, and like, you know, it, it just, it's own alchemy and art right now. So yeah. I, I think there's going to be a lot of different pre-trained models that have different um, so, sort of strength and, and weaknesses. Um, I think there's going to be models pre-trained that, that do one specific things uh, like ours, and by the way, you can still fine tune our thing and make it like yeah. generate tests or make it do shell suggestions better or, yeah. or, or whatever. Um, and, um, and, and, and again, you know, you're still going to have the palms and the Gemini's and the GPT fours yeah. and fives of the world, and they'll continue getting better. But for people who want to build and ship product, uh, the question is like, what is the latency? What is the cost? Um, you know, uh, if if there's a user query that comes in or a user action and you can do it with 90% or 99% less cost and and, um, and and latency, why wouldn't you do that, right? Yeah. Um, the, 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 the thing you're adding on is, is it ends up being like more engineering costs and more maintenance, maintenance costs because now you're going to have some kind of like routing layer or some intent classifier or something that does pre-processing. But honestly, that's already what's happening. Some of the best 
LLM applications out there are already figuring out doing that. And even, you know, when we talk about retrieval, that's what, what's happening in retrieval. We're, you know, running, we're embedding the query, running, uh, you know, similarities uh, against some index and then like putting more in the prompt. Uh, so in some sense, there's already sort of that happening. Um, and, um, and really the, the goal is like, how do you build the best product? And in my opinion, uh, currently that's the best way to build the best product, but I'm happy to be surprised if GPT-4 sort of uh, 10Xs and, and speed and, uh, and 10 to 100X in, in, in cost, then, then maybe that equation changes. I see. So it seems like there are a lot of decisions a company would have to make as a embark on this journey, right? Like whether like chamber from scratch or get a base model, if using a base model, what more, what base model to use? And then if fine tune, like what level of like fine tuning, uh, like different uh, domains or different tasks? It seems like quite a lot. Yeah, it's a lot. And I think why companies like yours are very important in this space. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, uh, th there's a lot of tooling to build. Uh, a lot of times you would want to, uh, you know, I, I think the end scenario is, is sort of something like, you know, I have a model uh, and yeah. I want to do RLHF to it. I send, your, I send you my weights and my data and I get yeah. back into the model. Right. And there's going to be a lot of different services, a lot of startups building that. So, you know, there's this explosion in um, sort of free market activity to solve these problems. Yeah. And I, I think the average developer would not have to learn all that stuff, mm. uh, you know, going forward. And it's the same way that the average developer at this point doesn't even, uh, you know, doesn't even know what computer they're running on uh, when it yeah. comes to their, you know, running web software. Yeah. Uh, actually, we're just a time. I feel like this is really interesting discussions. Do you think like I can follow up, like do like more in depth chat? Because I do think it's like I, I'm, I'm thinking I'm writing about something. I think we didn't touch a lot on like open source versus API because of course there are other issues like data ownership, right? Uh, or like yeah. inference service. I think like um, or say something in between, right? Like you can fine tune on the own data, but you can have somebody else to like host or fine tune model and like do own the optimization for you. Um, or like evaluation. Do you think I would love to like just chat more and like um, yeah, there, there's up. there's yeah. a lot of really cool companies uh, spinning up now to do evaluation as well, and um, and and that's very interesting. But yeah, happy to continue the conversation. Um, you know, we, we can, we can do one or more, uh, of these things, uh, but we're also increasingly doing events at our office and we want to create a sort of a community here in, yeah. in Silicon Valley. Come to visit us. Yeah. We're, we're always here. Yeah. Okay. That sounds right. great. So we're right on time. Um, thanks again, you know, both to Chip and Judd, you know, a very exciting discussion. I hope, you know, everyone, all the listeners enjoyed it. Thanks for attending. Uh, let's follow up. On Twitter, you know, you can find Amjad, Chip, and I there. So any question that we weren't able to address today, ask us. You know, we're more than happy to keep talking. And if you want to try some of our LLMs at Replit, check those writer, um, register for Replit Pro, and then you will get access to all the cool LLM features that we've been building in the last few months. Yeah, Thank I mean, you guys one. have great user experience. Thank you so much. Have Thank a great you. day. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye.